And if you would, please turn with me to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 4. Acts 4, 23 to 31. Next week we'll finish Acts, chapter 4 that is. Then we'll take a break from the book of Acts. We'll spend uh, a few weeks on the topic of prayer, delving deeply into the topic of prayer, Lord willing. And then shortly thereafter, we'll, we'll continue to work through the Psalms during the summer. Acts 4, chapter, or verse 23, down to 31. When Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we, we are needy. Lord, I am needy as your servant. Asking that you might help me to make the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart acceptable to you. And Lord, the words that I have to say don't matter if your spirit is not behind them and using them for your glory and the good of your people. Father, help us to receive your word. And by your spirit, we pray that you would fulfill your purposes through your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you are familiar with George Mueller, who planted or instituted, or put together, or constructed many orphanages. I think it's around five orphanages, serving somewhere around 10,000 orphans. Before he embarked on this endeavor, he actually had met with several businessmen to try to generate some ideas, some thoughts, how to start something from the ground up. And he met with these businessmen, and he became very surprised and very distraught because many of these men had shared with him that it is nearly or virtually impossible to start a business from the ground up and to do so ethically without having to cut corners here and there. 
And God used that to essentially set George Mueller on his path. And when it came to establishing an orphan house, what was his desire? What was his great motivation? And he answers in this way. He says, I certainly did from my heart desire to be used by God to benefit the bodies of poor children, bereaved of both parents, and seek in other respects, with the help of God, to do them good for this life. I also particularly longed to be used by God in getting the dear orphans trained up in the fear of God. Praise the Lord. But still, the first and primary object of the work was that God might be magnified by the fact that the orphans under my care are provided with all they need only by prayer and faith, without anyone being asked by me or my fellow laborers, whereby it may be seen that God is faithful still and hears prayer still. So he went about this, not asking for help from anyone, not as a because he's prideful or too arrogant to ask, but because he wanted to God to be magnified and for the world, including, he would say elsewhere, to show unbelievers the reality of God and that he serves a God who is faithful and still answers prayer. And so the very great theme, the great legacy of his life as we know it today is that God answers prayer. And we see this also in the testimony of those who many have come before him and many after him. And in fact, the great, one of the great testimony of the scriptures from beginning to end is that God answers prayer. And that is very much what we see in the passage here this morning, that God answers prayer. And if I could put sort of a, a communal spin to that statement, it would be that God produces results when the church prays. God produces results when the church prays. So the way I want to sort of go about this passage, three points, and all based on three temporal relationships that we see in this passage, temporal relationships, it sort of comes from study of the Bible, and it sort of examines what is the relationship between one sentence and another the one that comes before, the one that comes after. How do they relate to one another? And temporal relationship is essentially showing when this happens, this happens. And there's three of those in this passage. The first is in verse 23. The second is in verse 24. And the third is in verse 31. So first, verse 23 when we draw our first point, and that is, when the church is in need, the church gathers. Verse 23, when Peter and John, after having been arrested and threatened by the religious teachers for preaching the gospel, they were released, and they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Christ came into the world seeking a bride for himself, and that bride is the church, redeeming people through his sacrifice on the cross. And when Christ saves an individual, he does not just simply leave them as individuals, but Christ joins them to himself and also intends for them to be joined to other believers as well. 
And so the assembly of the church is the meeting of the saints. And it is in the meeting of the saints where the presence of Christ most dwells. It is through faith that we are united with Christ. It is through faith in this union with Christ that we are also then united to one another. Serving the same Lord, united to the same Lord. And the scriptures present this in a very unique way, in a way that is intended to be distinct from your closest relationships in your life. Probably for most of us, if not all of us, family. And for example, in Romans 12, 4, we see the uniqueness of this relationship in the life of the church, the body of Christ. It says, for as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So this is described as one body with many members. Ephesians 4 says similarly, similarly, speaking of this union, this oneness, it says there is one body, that is the church, and one spirit. Just you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The church is one body, glued together by one spirit, having responded to the one hope of the gospel, headed by one Lord Jesus Christ, walking by the one justifying faith, having identified with Christ through one baptism, serving the one God and Father who is over all things. And as believers, all believers are joined to the universal church, but believers are also called to join and be part of a local church, And why does this matter? Why is this important? Because we see, actually, this in the life of the apostles. Peter and John did not work in isolation. They went and proclaimed the gospel and were threatened, they were arrested, and then finally they were released. But they did not work in isolation. What we see is that their immediate response is to go to their friends, to go to the church, the apostles were not sort of these super apostles that they didn't need the church, that they could have functioned individually apart from the church, but they still very much needed the church. And they remained tethered to the church. And certainly there are exceptions out in the world where brothers and sisters are persecuted for their faith and they do not have a church to meet with regularly. And I think there is special grace that God showers upon them to sustain them. But it's not... The norm. In most cases, believers are called to tether themselves to other believers. A Christian community may be compared to sort of vines that continue to bear fruit and continue to grow and spread out, but ultimately, if you trace the vine, there's always a root, and the vines are always traced back to the same root. And in the Christian community, that root is the church where Jesus Christ's presence dwells. And when we sever ourselves from Christian community, we sever ourselves from the life of the church. And go long enough, we we wither and are not able to bear fruit, and we die. 
So Christians tethered themselves to one church. And there's a particular practicality of this union that believers share with one another. 1 Corinthians 12.26 tells us, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Right, so very much like I said, if you have a deep gash on your arm and it's painful, right, you can't somehow turn off the pain receptors so you can no longer feel the pain in your arm. No, you, you feel that pain. So very much in the life of the church, what it means for the church, for, for believers to be gathered to one another and have this union with one another is that when one member suffers, they all share in the same suffering. When one is in sorrow, they all are feeling sorrowful. When one is rejoicing, then it is also the rejoicing of all. Hebrews 13, there the writer to the Hebrews says there that uh, to remember those who are in prison, he says in Hebrews 13, remember those who are in prison as if you were there suffering with them. We see in the book of Acts, how the first church shared in all things, that had all things in common. Nobody had this sort of this possessive nature about their belonging, but they distributed freely to all and sold things in order to care for one another. We see in the first church that they, they together devoted themselves to the same things. So what this union means, as it relates to what we are seeing in this passage in Acts, with regards to prayer, is that the prayer requests of one becomes the prayer requests of all. So when Peter and John were finally released, they immediately went to the church. Why? Because there was a need. Right? And we'll understand more of this need as we continue through the passage, but there was a need, and the immediate response, which is a lesson for us, is to make haste to the church. Make haste to the brothers and sisters. There is a need, you make haste. Go to God's people. Whereas we all know in the, in, in the old fable that it is slow and steady that ultimately won the race. But as Christians, we should be marked with a, the haste, the speediness of the hare and go to the presence of Christ in Christian community. Needs ought to drive us to crave help at the hands of God. Like a bird makes haste to its nest, so Christians, when needs arise, should make haste and seek help and comfort at God's nest, and that nest is in the life of the church. And another lesson we take from this first point is that needs should gather the church. That's what we see. Not only the apostles make haste to go to their friends in the church, but they gathered together to listen to the need. So when the church is in need, the church gathers. Then secondly, when the church gathers, the church prays. When the church gathers, the church prays. And we see this in the second temporal relationship in verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. There are two opposing things that are happening here at this moment, not only in Peter and John's life, but also in the life of the church. And that is, on the first hand, that there's this opposition to the church. There's this opposition to the preaching of the gospel. The religious elite and the authorities of the day said, stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ or else. But on the other hand, there was the need to continue to preach the gospel. And then that drives them to prayer. So let's consider the prayer. There's at least three movements in this prayer. The first movement is sovereign God. They begin by ascribing God his sovereignty, the one who created all things. There's an appeal to God as the sovereign creator of all things. And I think this is intended to point to the fact that God is authoritative, that there is no authority above God's, and there is no authority that is equal to the authority of God. And then it goes on to the second movement in this quotation from Psalm 2. And this points to the rage of the nations. Psalm 2 is intended to be a messianic psalm about God putting his king on a holy hill and the nations raging against God's anointed. And even though there is this rage towards God's anointed, we have then the sovereignty of God brought to mind again as the church prays and says that whatever the nations did towards God's anointed, it was according to the predestining hand of God. So what we see is what's predicted in Psalm 2 comes then to realization in the life of Jesus Christ. Herod and Pontius Pilate representing the kings and the lords and the rulers of the world. Gentiles representing the heathen nations and the peoples of Israel, the very people of God representing the religious, all coming together to rage against God's anointed whom God had put on the throne, ultimately coming to nothing, but instead showing that even their rage is intended to move forward the plan of God for his glory. Which you obviously see in the life of Jesus Christ, because it is through the crucifixion that we receive our salvation. We see another examples in the scriptures very early on in Genesis, in Joseph, who was delivered over to the Egyptians as a slave, God intended to further his plan to save ultimately his people through the hand of Joseph. We see later on in the book of Acts with the stoning, the martyrdom of Stephen for proclaiming the gospel and what happens afterwards. Right, the church, the Christians, who were for the most part localized in one region as a result of Peter's, or, or rather Stephen's martyrdom, become afraid of the persecution, and they disperse. And in that dispersing, they continue then to go on 
They proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ to other parts of the world. All showing that at the end of the day, that no one and no authority and no nation could ever come against God's anointed. In Psalm 2, verse 4, it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs, laughs at the rage of the nations. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, what is the church's point in referencing the psalm? And their point is that the opposition continues. That the opposition that was once directed towards Jesus Christ, that opposition has now changed directions. It's now pointed to the church. Which is really no different than pointing it to Jesus because Jesus identifies himself with his church so that to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus Christ. So the point is, is saying these things and praying these things is to say, God, you're sovereign over all things. The opposition that your son, that your king had faced that ultimately led to his crucifixion is the same opposition that your church faces today, which then leads to the third movement, which is the request. So they say, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and sign to perform wonders in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So there's another relationship here between clauses and sentences, and that is a situation and response. What is the situation? The situation is that there is threat. There is opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the, the, the church says, Lord, look upon the situation. Look upon their threats. And respond by giving your servants boldness. Lord, give us boldness. And in the request, they're showing what the priority of the church is. I'm convinced that there are two main priorities of the church, one internal and one external. And the internal one comes from Ephesians 4.11, where it tells us that Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, of the fullness of Christ. For what purpose? So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the ways, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. In other words, one of the main priorities of the church is to continue to grow, to maturity, to reach the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ. Now, we'll tell you that we'll never reach that in this life, but it's not an excuse to strive for it. Our main objective is to become more and more like Jesus Christ, not just individually, but also in community, together, to become more and more like Jesus Christ. To grow in maturity, so that we may not be carried away by whatever is taught out there in the world, so that we may not be so easily led astray. So our aim is that we might continue to grow. So don't take it offensively if the person next to you tells you, hey, Grow up. Because we're all called 
even the most mature believer is called to grow up in maturity in the likeness of Jesus Christ. The second priority of the church, and it's not that one is more important than the other, they're, all, they're both equally important, but the second priority of the church, which we see in this request of the church, is an external emphasis. And that main, and that priority comes from Matthew 28, which is the Great Commission, where it tells us there, Jesus said, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The main priority of the church is to continue to grow up and to go out and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So notice what the church is not praying for in light of their situation. They're not praying for protection. They're not praying for safety. They're not praying that God might let them retire from gospel ministry. Instead, their prayer is, God, give your servants boldness to continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. To not be silent, but speak with all boldness. And in this, we see a valuable lesson for us, and that is that God, God equips those who pray. He equips those who pray. I, had a one, I have a wonderful friend who had told me many years ago, something that I still carry with me to this day, and that is that God does not call the equipped, but God equips the called. In other words, if you already had everything that you needed, if you were self-sufficient, to do everything that you needed to do, right? then God doesn't care to use you. God cares to use the needy. God cares to use those who recognize their need. It is those that God uses gloriously and wonderfully for his purposes. And very rarely, when God gives to you a particular calling or a an assignment or a responsibility, whether it's out there or in the life of the church, very rarely does he give you everything that you need the moment that you receive that responsibility or that assignment. But most often is that you will be equipped gradually, that as you continue to live faithfully out that responsibility or that assignment, you're going to more and more recognize your own needs and your own weaknesses, and the intention there is to drive you to prayer so that you can ask and so that you can then receive. A soldier is sent on his mission equipped with a walkie-talkie so that when he needs assistance, all he has to do is call in for help. But that help will never come until he picks up the walkie-talkie and asks. There are times when following the Lord's call, we will certainly realize we need something that we don't have so that we might be reminded that the strength to accomplish what God has given us to do does not come from ourselves, but it comes from the Lord. Our sufficiency is not in ourselves, but our sufficiency is in Christ. In the apostles, what we see here is that they didn't have all the boldness at the ready. 
They didn't receive it the moment that they received their apostleship. No, they recognized that they needed something more to continue to fulfill their God-given assignment. And what they needed was boldness. And so they prayed for boldness. When the church is in need, the church gathers. When the church gathers, the church prays. And then lastly, when the church prays, God answers. When the church prays, God answers. And we see this lastly in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word with all boldness. In studying the scriptures, I love the, 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 these temporal relationships because it tells you when, an, uh, when a statement is true. Right? When this happened, this happened. Right? When my car broke down, I fixed it. When I became hungry, I ate. When I prayed, God answered. So God answered when I prayed. I ate when I became hungry. I fixed my car when it broke down. The apostles in the church, they gather together, and what happens when they pray? God answered. Because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not that they were saved again, not that they were saved a second time, but it means something else. There was a greater filling of the Spirit. There's something that I think the New Testament makes the case for, that something as we as believers should pursue, and that is a greater filling up of the Spirit. What does this mean? It is like turning up the temperature in the furnace of your heart or casting more logs into the fireplace of your heart so that the flame is burning hotter and larger and brighter, resulting in greater fervency for the things of the Lord, greater passion for the things of the Lord, and perhaps a much more devout, devout prayer life perhaps a greater understanding of the scriptures, perhaps might more passionately serving others in ways perhaps that you haven't been before. They were filled with the Spirit and given boldness to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of opposition. Boldness is given when they prayed. And this and many other passages points to us the great necessity of prayer. Even on the Sermon on the Mount, even in Jesus' first sermon, Jesus makes the case for the necessity of prayer. In that sermon, he says in Matthew 7, 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. So in other words, the door's not going to open if you don't knock. You're not going to receive if you don't ask. You're not going to find if you don't seek and look. John 57. There Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If you want the Lord to enter your prayers, there is a condition that must be met and that is that you must abide in Christ. You must be in Christ. What does this mean to abide in Christ? To walk in His ways. To pursue Christ. 
That is, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is having no idols before Jesus Christ. And when that happens, when you are walking faithfully in this abiding in Jesus Christ, what happens is that the desires of your heart begin to change so that your desires begin to reflect the desires of Christ for you so that there is a great harmony between what Christ desires for you and what you desire for yourself so that when you do pray, the Lord is more than eager to answer your request because it is something that is consistent with what the Lord desires for you. But that is not going to happen if you do not meet the condition, and that is that you abide in the vine who is Christ. And it's passages like these and many others that show us that prayer must be the lifeblood of every believer. It absolutely has to be. And there are trials and there are sufferings, there are situations, there are things that happen to us that are unexpected, oftentimes that sort of causes us to, to gasp. But prayer is sort of our, our exhale. If Christ is going to keep you and preserve you and sustain you and uphold you in this life, it is never going to be apart from prayer. Prayer is what activates the promises of God. Prayer is knocking at the door of the throne of grace. Prayer is your walkie-talkie in your time of need. Prayer is the saint's means of taking hold of God. We understand why Jesus Christ holds us in times of trials and oppression and suffering and praise the Lord for that. We have that assurance in John chapter 6 that he will never lose any of those who are his. But prayer is the means by which we then in turn hold on to Christ. John Calvin writes, Discouragement may abound and almost overwhelm us as our warfare is unceasing and various assaults arise daily, but that gives all the more reason to discipline ourselves to persevere in prayer, even if we must repeat the same supplications, not twice or three times only, but as often as we need, a hundred, a thousand times. He is so bold and direct, to say this, he says, ceasing to pray when God does not answer us quickly is the surest part that we have never become a believer. Now, there are certainly times when we continue to pray. And, and by the way, the scriptures encourage us to continue to pray for the same things, to be persistent in asking for the same things. Now, what Calvin is not saying here is that someone who is, that the person is a unbeliever when they keep praying for the same things and stop praying for the same things for whatever reason, maybe God has answered and said the answer is no. But what he's talking about here is when a person ceases to pray altogether, when they are praying to the Lord, and finally they say, you know what, I'm done praying. I'm not going to pray anymore. I'm not going to seek the Lord anymore. Calvin says, that person is giving the short mark that they may be an unbeliever. What we see is that in the time of need, the church prayed. And the scriptures encourages us to continue to pray and command us to pray. And even if we're praying for the same things over and over again, to continue to pray until we know we have received an answer. And when the church prayed, they received boldness. 
And the lesson we draw from this is that a most efficient method for growing in boldness is to pray for boldness. Not gonna most sure you could be helped by a self-help book or some kind of strategy or program, whatever the case might be. But we see in the life of the apostles, and not the first time we see it in the book of Acts, the most efficient method of growing in boldness is to pray for boldness. And you know that God is more than eager to answer that request. How could he withhold that request if the desire is to have boldness to continue to proclaim his gospel? The Lord wants his church to have boldness but he waits for the church to ask for that boldness. And this is a supernatural boldness. It's given from above. I mean, consider the context. In the face of opposition, after having been threatened, after having been arrested, right, charged, stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, they got the priority straight. They said, we need to continue to preach the gospel. This is what we commit to do, but we need something that comes from above. We need boldness. And they got it. Really, the main point of this section, I believe, is God's blessing his church's boldness, or bold decision, rather, to fulfill their assignment. It is God's blessing, his church's bold decision to fulfill their assignment. But I think a second point from this passage, sort of driving from that main point, which is the one really I want to leave you with, is that God, as I said earlier, God produces results when the church prays. He does. And we must believe that he does. When I walk people through the church covenant when they're pursuing membership, I walk them through that covenant. Part of that covenant is to faithfully pray for your church. To faithfully pray for your church. Right? It's one of the reasons why we pray on Sunday mornings. It's one of the reasons why we put this prayer booklet for people to share their prayer requests so that you can take that with you and pray for people, pray for these requests throughout the week. It is a way of committing or fulfilling that covenant to pray faithfully for your church. Right, And if you haven't been able, for whatever reason, to add your prayer request to that booklet, feel free. Come to me, ask Brooke. We'd be happy there's a place in the back of those booklets for people to add those prayer requests. Be happy to include them on Sunday mornings as well. But it's a way to encourage us to continue to play, pray faithfully for the church. And if I could, and maybe I will, add just one thing else to that church covenant is to faithfully pray with your church as well. To pray faithfully with the church. Since beginning the book of Acts, I've grown increasingly burdened to pray more, to pray more with, with you all, to pray more with God's people. And so, two things to sort of leave with by way of conclusion. One, as I said, pray. Pray for your church. Pray for the needs 
of those next to you, of those around you. The prayer requests of one is the prayer requests of all. The needs of one is the needs of all. And secondly, something you won't be able to do yet, but I'm letting you know beforehand so that when the opportunity comes, you remember I told you. I think, personally, I think it's time to, to resurrect prayer services. As a church, we should pray more. And in time, and I'm thinking within, within the next month, I'd love to be able to have an opportunity to pray with God's people, to pray with you all. Time, location will be sent to you as it gets closer. But there will always be needs. And that's not a complaint. But the needs remind us, should remind us, that we need to pray. Needs should gather the church together. And when the church gathers, the church should pray. And when the church prays, the Lord will answer. So that's really the idea behind having prayer services. So between now and a month from now, consider meeting with God's people, coming, if you can, if time allows, if you can make the time to meet with God's people, to pray, to make your needs known, and pray together as a body, the body of Jesus Christ. And we need to continue to lift our requests unto the Lord. Make our needs known to one another. And so, and if in the time, in the time being, right, if you're not yet a part of a community group, that is also another opportunity to pray with God's people. So I would encourage you to attend one of those regularly not only to be in the Word, but also to be in prayer as well. So with that, let's pray. Lord, what an encouragement that we see here in this passage, which we also see in numerous other places in the entirety of the Scriptures, that when God's people pray, God answers. God, and, and sometimes the answer does not come at the time that we desire. Sometimes the answer does not come in the way that we desire. Sometimes the answer we ask for is not the answer you give. But the scriptures affirm that God will answer. We just need to ask. And Lord, there are many of us here who have perhaps been praying for the same things for a long time. Perhaps weeks, perhaps months, perhaps years. Whether it is the salvation of a loved one. Whether it is provision. Whether it is healing. Lord, we pray for their encouragement that they may continue to pray, 
Lord, cause our faith to rise. Give strength to our faith so that we may wholeheartedly believe that when we pray, when we come to you, not only do you listen, but you will respond in some way, shape, or form. Lord, you are the giver of good gifts. Everything that we have today comes from your hand. And we also have the promise that you also work all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Just as you did in the life of Christ and predestining his crucifixion at the hands of sinners in order to ultimately accomplish our salvation. Lord, you are a good God. You are a good Father. You never tire of us coming to you, even if it's 10,000 times a day, even if it's praying for the same thing over and over again. You never tire of listening to the voices of your precious children. So Lord, in turn, help us to not tire or grow weary in coming to the throne of grace and seeking and asking and knocking. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.